make sure you guys are done. <laughs> Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 will be starting in verse 7. I was a chaplain for a football team in Florida, high school football team, for a short period of time, and, and I was sitting uh, on the sidelines watching a practice when I started witnessing to one of the teachers that was there, and just in order to help him to see his sin, I said, the way what God requires of you is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, as Michael was saying, and love your neighbor as yourself every second of every day. And he said to me, yeah, I do that. And I was like, what? You know, in my mind, I was floored. I couldn't believe that somebody could answer that question that way. And, and, um, but it, I shouldn't have been surprised. You know, Jesus got the same answer from the rich young ruler, remember? He said, keep the law. And he goes, yeah, I've kept it my whole life, since I was a child. You know, so I shouldn't have been in shock. And, and you know what? No one can see a revelation of God until they see a revelation of their own sin. And the only way you can see a revelation of your own sin is God in His grace opens your eyes to see it. And that's what we're going to see this morning with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And the first thing that we'll look at is seeing her sin. Beginning in verse 7, this is the Word of God. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become to him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, 
Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship, what you worship, what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. As we have previously seen, Jesus loved this woman before he even spoke a word to her. In fact, the scriptures say that he loved her before the foundation of the earth, according to Ephesians 1.4. He traveled through Samaria and not around it, like most Jews would do. Most Jews would do that because they hated the Samaritans, as we said before. He travels through it, and he travels there to meet with this woman because he has a divine appointment with her. Now, she must have been totally surprised when he starts speaking with her because of his nationality and her social and spiritual condition. He begins the conversation talking about living water, and she starts thinking in literal terms. She's thinking about spring water. And the most important thing that she's thinking about is this. She doesn't want to walk so far. Okay, this well is located about a half a mile out of Sychar. In fact, this well, Jacob's well, is still in Israel today. Isn't that amazing? 4,000 years and that well is still there. So she had to travel a half a mile, walk a half a mile outside of town to get to the well, and then a half a mile back carrying water. No wonder she's thinking about water, right? So Jesus uses this conversation to point her towards spiritual things, but her thoughts are on her own, spirit, her own physical struggles instead of her soul's need. And many of us have been in the same position when we were not in Christ. Some of us, it took a physical problem to point us to our spiritual need. And Jesus finally gets the attention of this woman by making one statement. And I believe this statement pretty much rocked her world. All he had to say was this. He said, go call your husband and come back. Wow. You know, that's not such an earth-shattering statement, is it? What was her reply? Her reply is, I have no husband. That was it. You know what? I can imagine she's thinking, I'm not saying anything else. I have no husband. That's it. 
You know, she could have been thinking, this guy's a stranger. I don't know him. I'm not going to tell him anything else. She could have even been thinking, stranger danger, right? Stranger danger. But she doesn't say anything else. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. For in fact, you've had five husbands. And the man that you have now is not your husband. You have said what you've said is quite true. So he's saying, you're, you're being honest. You're, you're being honest with what you're saying. Now, can you imagine being that woman at that moment? Having this stranger tell you about your past. You, you might be wondering, you know, how did he know this? Did he speak with somebody on the way to the well? Um, is he like the amazing Kreskin? Can he read my mind? You remember the amazing Kreskin? Okay. A few head shakes. Nobody's my age anymore. <laughs> um, so she's, she's wondering, you know, who is this man? And she's probably coming to the place where she's knowing that she's not standing in the presence of somebody who is of this world. And now I want you to notice something else. Jesus doesn't hesitate to confront this woman. He doesn't hesitate. He loves her enough to tell her about her sin so that she can see her need of him as her Savior. Now think about this in this world. I mean, if we give the gospel, most of the times people don't think we're loving them. What do they think? Huh? What do they think? What? Yeah, you're judging or you're hating them, right? You're a hater. That's not what Jesus teaches here. He's saying he's a lover of this woman. And you know what else he's doing? He's sticking his neck out for her. And you know what? Every time we give the gospel to somebody else, we are loving them by sticking out our neck and risking everything for them. That is true love. And so Jesus does something that many modern churches fail to do. He talks to this woman about her sin. Many years ago, I had a young man come to my office, and he was talking to me for a while about his girlfriend and how he wanted to marry her, and I was saying, okay, yeah, that's great. And, you know, he asked, can you do that? And, you know, I was saying, shaking my head, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, uh, we kept going. He says, I'm going to another church, and we go every week together. And I, I'm saying, great, that's great. And he kept talking and talking, and I, and I kept probing, asking more questions. And finally, I found out that they were living together. So I was one, I was in shock. Why? Because they were living together, going to church every week, and this church never, never lovingly confronted them with their sin. You know, maybe they didn't know about it. Maybe that's why he was in my office, you know, asking me to marry him. But this shouldn't have surprised me. Because, you know, we have a, a society that is bombarded daily, and you guys know this, we're bombarded daily with advertisements, commercials, movies, TV shows that, that not only promote this type of lifestyle, but glamorize it. 
You know, they say, this is the greatest thing. And, and Satan is behind this, pushing this, pushing this against what God knows is best for us. No wonder we have a generation that does not see sex before marriage as a sinful lifestyle. In fact, many would rationalize this by saying, well, I'm in love, and I don't need a piece of paper to justify being in love. They might ask, why does God call fornication sin? And the answer to that question can be found in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus came to this earth, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never failed to please God in any way. And we are sinners because we cannot keep his law perfectly, which reflects his character perfectly. And you see, fornication is just one outward expression of a heart that's in rebellion against God. 1 Corinthians 6 says this. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it says, Do not be deceived. Now, what this is saying is, if you are saying you're a believer and you're reading this, do not deceive yourself in saying you're a believer if you're living in one of these sins. And it says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus knew the heart of this woman. He knew that she was enslaved to her sin. So he lovingly confronts her to show her spiritual need. Now, listen to this. He calls her from her sin, but then he calls her to follow him. He doesn't just say, turn from your sin and do nothing else. He says, turn from your sin and follow me. Now, where does it say that, you might ask? Look at verse 16. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband, and notice what he says, and come here. What's he saying? He's saying, Go call your husband and come to me. Come to me. You know, um, one writer says this, Go call your husband is a message for her conscience. Come to me, come to me, or come here is a word for her heart. Is a word for her heart. And if this morning you see yourself in a similar position as a Samaritan woman, Jesus' call to you is the same call that she gave her. The only way that you can know God is by first seeing your sin. You must turn from your sin and then listen to the wonderful call of Christ to come to me. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What, who, who's that message to? It's, it's to people who are trying to get to God on their own. They're trying to get to God by keeping the law. And he's saying, 
If you're striving to do that, you're going to be weary. You're going to be worn out. And he's saying, come and rest in me, rest in my righteousness. Well, this simple message changed the life of this woman. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that her life changed? Well, let's look at the signs of life. Look at verses 25 through 29. Look there with me. It says, Therefore, oops, wrong. Let me get to the right chapter here. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with this woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. This woman says that when the Messiah comes, he's going he's to tell us what's true. And then Jesus says another shocking statement you know, to her. He says this, I am he. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. You know, this must have floored her because when he says, I am, he's using the same name for God that is used in Exodus when Moses says to God, who's going to, who, who, who do I say to the people that's calling me to do this? And God says to him, I am. He's the self-existent one. He is the creator of the universe. And that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. I am God. I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, can you imagine how shocking that would be? After him telling about her past life, then he tells her, I'm the Messiah. She must not have known what to say at this point. You know, she must have been speechless. In fact, she doesn't say anything after that. She may have thought, here I stand before the Son of God. He knows everything about me. Think about this. He knows everything about me. He knows all of my sins, and yet he still loves me. And that's the grace of the gospel that we all have, that we are justified, yet sinners in God's eyes. Well, then the disciples walk up, and my kids used to use the, the word awkward a lot a few years ago. Everything was awkward. You know, awkward this, awkward that. You remember that? About, what, three, four years ago? Um, but this is the definition of awkward. I mean, the disciples walk up. Everybody's kind of looking at each other probably. You know, Jesus, the woman's looking at Jesus, probably sitting there in shock, right? Finding out who he is. The disciples walk up and are looking at them and thinking, why are you talking to this woman, this immoral woman? So they're looking down their nose at her, right? As Jesus is giving her the gospel, and they're thinking how unworthy she is, and they're missing the total point. In fact, Jesus, Jesus is, you know, he's probably thinking, 
when are these guys going to get it? You know? In fact, he goes into talking about that. In verse 31 through 38, he starts talking about giving the gospel. And he starts telling the disciples, he says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. They weren't getting it. You know, they're sitting there talking about food. You know, we're, we're getting food for Jesus. And he's saying, my food is to do the will of my Father, which is giving this woman the gospel. And they're, what are they doing? They're looking down their nose at her. Um, and the amazing thing is they're also missing what the overall, overall picture of what Jesus was trying to show them. Just think, John 3 talks about Nicodemus, right? And the gospel being given to the Jews. But then in John 4, the gospel is going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans. And the disciples weren't getting it. In fact, listen to this. Peter, the apostle Peter, didn't get this message until Acts chapter 10. Wow. He spent three years with Jesus, right? And then, I don't know how long it was till Acts chapter 10, but this is a long period of time not knowing that the gospel is not just going for the Jews, but it's going for the whole world. And that's where Peter gives the gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius, and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon him, and he is in total shock when it happens. The disciples didn't know what was going on. And how does that apply to us? Um, we need to keep listening to the Word of God, or we're going to miss out on things. You know, just think, Peter was with Christ for three years, and it took for him to figure out that the gospel is going to the nations. Well, this awkward situation is finally interrupted by the woman leaving. And she leaves and takes off and without saying a word. Now, how do we know that this woman had a changed heart? How do we know that she was born again? And the question can be asked, how do you know that about yourself? How do you know that about yourself? One author compares the physical life with the spiritual life by saying this. He says, how do we know that the woman of Samaria had been born again? We know it because of the changes that took place in her. Some time ago, I was reading a book on childbirth that includes within it a partial listing of changes that take place in a baby's life during the first, listen to this, first few seconds after birth. I am told that there are dozens of these changes. To begin with, eyes that have previously been accustomed to darkness must adjust themselves to light. A body that was used to temperatures of nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit within the mother's uh, must adapt to temperatures approximately 20 degrees lower. The circulation of the infant's blood changes no longer flowing through the umbilical cord as it did when the child was in the womb, but instead flowing through the lungs. A valve in the heart, which had been open until birth, must close permanently so that the used blood and the fresh blood circulating through the heart will not mingle. 
Is that amazing? Think about that. How can anybody, this is a side note, how can anybody believe in evolution when, when you see all that happening like that? It takes a creator to design something like that. Okay, off of that. Um, lungs must fill with air and begin their lifelong function. These and many other changes involving the nose, the throat, the digestive tract, skin, must all take place within a few seconds of birth if the baby is to live a new life and be healthy. In the same way, there are certain changes that must take place within the life of the one who has been born again spiritually. And what are some of those changes? Well, listen to these that the woman had, um, the woman at the well had. First one is the change of priorities. Look at verse 28. Look down at verse 28. What's it, what does it say happened? Here's the important thing. She left her bucket. <laughs> it's like, wow. You know, newsflash. She left her bucket. Now, if she's like me, she probably just forgot about it, right? That's not, that's not it. Because look at what it says right after that. It says she left her bucket. And now think about that. What was the whole conversation about? The water, the bucket, her not having to haul the bucket, all those different things. So that was the main focus of her life at that point. And then, right after that, her heart's changed. She leaves that bucket. And what does she do? She goes to speak to the town about Christ. That's so cool. So cool to see an immediate change in her heart. You see, when Christ changes our heart, our priorities change. And that's what we see in her. I, I remember before I became a Christian, I was scared to death what my friends would think of me if I became a Christian. I knew that becoming a Christian would mean me changing. And I, I didn't want to do that because I thought my friends would mock me, right? But I finally came to a point where, where God worked it out in me that I said, I don't care what they think. It doesn't matter. You see, my priorities changed. Um, the thief no longer steals, but works hard each day. The hedonist finds his pleasure in God and not fulfilling his desires. You see, when God changes the heart, the priorities change, as we have seen in the Samaritan woman's life. Now, this doesn't mean, um, this doesn't mean perfection. You know, it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life changes. Well, the second thing that changed in her was her profession. Was her profession. Look at verse 20. What does she say? She says, we worship in the mountains. You guys worship in Jerusalem. You know, which is right. And she's really just trying to get the subject off her own sin. So she's trying to get the spotlight off her sin and ask a question. Um... What she's doing is making a profession of religion. Okay, and then in verse 29, she makes a profession of faith. She goes and tells the men of the town her faith in Christ. She says he's the Messiah. And I want you to notice something else about her. <laughs> she goes to the town to tell the men of the town about Christ. That's amazing. Why? 
because I bet you many had mistreated her, many had mocked her, many had even taken part in immorality with her. So what does she do? Does she hate them? Does she say, I'll never have anything to do with them again because I'm forgiven. I'm going to go to some other town. No. She says, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love my enemy. I'm going to do good to those who have done evil to me. In fact, I'm forgiven and I'm going to forgive them. And one way of showing forgiveness is by going and giving the gospel to them. And that's what she does. And notice one other thing about her a change. She doesn't go to them and say, Hey guys, I know who the Messiah is. I just figured it out. I'm a great theologian. You know? She doesn't do that. What does she say? She goes, I think he's the Messiah. She knew who he was. She knew he was the Messiah. Her heart was changed. Why do you think she was going to town to tell him? She knew who he was. But why did she do that? She didn't want to offend them. So she says, I think he's the Messiah. What do they do? They go, oh, we'll go check it out. We'll go check it out. Amazing. Third thing that changed in her was love. And this, I, I read a booklet by R.C. Sproul. This is like one of the most significant signs in a person's life that their heart has changed is love. That you love Christ. You know, 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Um, how do you know if you love Christ? Well, listen, listen to what Ephesians says. Um, keep your finger in John 4 real quick Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedient among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what every one of us was like before we were Christians. We didn't like God. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, Mark, I went to church. I, was, I went to church every day, my whole life. I loved God. And, and no, you didn't. Look at this passage. It says, if you're not born again, this is where you're at. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And it doesn't matter how you felt, even if you were going to church, the reason why you're going to church was to save yourself, and you were patting yourself on the back by saying how righteous you are. You see, that doesn't glorify God. That doesn't show a changed heart that loves Christ. Does that make sense? The only way you can love Christ is by having a changed heart. And how do you show, how do you know you love Christ? Well, one reason is, one, one thing is, you want to share him with others. Secondly, you want to obey him, and that's what she did immediately, right? You want to obey him, and like I said before, it's not perfection, it's the direction of your life. You want to worship him. You want to love the people of God. That's all a love for Christ. Well, finally, notice 
that she goes to the men and she says this to them. Come see a man who told me all the things I have done. She uses almost the same message that Christ calls her with. He says, go call your husband and come here. It's the same message, right? Come to Christ. Come see him. And this message has been going on throughout the Bible, throughout scriptures. Uh, Abraham had the call, come into the land which I will show you. Isaiah got the call. It says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus gives three important calls in the New Testament. He said to the rich young ruler, come follow me. He said to, to all of us, come unto me, like I've read before. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then finally in Revelation 19, 17, he says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now look at the final verse of this story. Verse 42. And I love this. After all these people become Christians, they say something to the woman. In verse 42, they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, they understood that Jesus was not just coming for the Jews, that he was coming for them. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It, that doesn't mean every person in the world. It means some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He came to save Jews. He came to save Samaritans and Greeks and Romans and Russians. This glorious call wasn't for one particular race, but it was given for every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that's why, think about this, many of us in this room have responded to that call. And not only is it a call for our salvation, but it's a call, as Jesus called the disciples, but to go out and give as you have been given to, to love others by calling them to come to Christ. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the glorious gospel. Father, we thank you for Christ coming to this earth, the incarnation, for him living amongst us, sinful people. And Father, for proclaiming the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. Lord, we will be forever grateful for the grace that we have been given. Help us now to Rejoice and show our thanksgiving to you by wanting to reach out to others. For we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.